Welcome to On the Job with Porak, your go-to place for public safety and officer rights, giving you the news you need to know and discussing the issues that matter. Hi, and welcome to another episode of On the Job with Porak. I'm Brian Marvel, president of Porak. With me is Porak Vice President Damon Kurtz. Today we're back at the Porak headquarters and talking to, while social distancing, air quotes, Porak's legislative advocate from Aaron Reed and Associates, Randy Perry, as well as two of Porak's LDF panel attorneys, David E. Mastagny of Mastagny Holstead APC and uh, Timothy K. Talbot of Rains, Lucia, Stern, St. Fowl, and Silver. PC. Today's podcast, we're going to talk about the uh, the wrap up of the legislative session, which ended on August 31st. Uh, it's technically supposed to end at midnight, but I guess they uh, they're allowed to hold it over until whenever they feel like they completed. But I think it wrapped up around 1:30 in the morning uh, with the Senate adjourning for the year. Obviously. I think this year and just the three years that I've been up here, um, and I know Randy could probably talk a little bit more about it with his time here at the Capitol. Uh, it, this was a rough year. I mean, I tell people we normally have like a top five bill list of folks that, uh, you know, bills that we're looking at trying to uh, either amend or, you know, get passed. But this year it was like a top 25 plus bills uh, that we were trying to actively work with the authors uh, to get amendments or to uh, get some of our legislation passed. And obviously, uh, a lot of the legislation uh, we didn't want it to get passed. And obviously, first and foremost is uh, Senate Bill 731 uh, by Senator Bradford. Uh, that was the police licensing bill and also the qualified immunity bill. I think what was interesting about that is um, I think that's one of the first times and, and Randy, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the author and the sponsor were unwilling to negotiate on anything is have you ever seen that in your time here or is that uh, it, it didn't it seemed uncommon this year and the fact that there was so much pushback on several bills where the author and the sponsors uh, refused to uh, to want to negotiate or even take amendments from anybody. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that last year, the ACLU, the main sponsors of SB 731 by Senator Bradford, really took ended up having to take a lot of amendments. They sponsored the Weber bill from last year, AB 392. And in the end, I don't think they were happy with the amount of amendments they were forced to take. So it was our understanding this year that they were going to do what they felt they needed to get done. They used the wave anti-law enforcement or police reform uh, wave across the country to try and use that to their advantage and not have to take any amendments. And finally, the authors of the measure turned down the governor's amendments first, and they were in serious negotiations for about two weeks. And then after that, after those talks broke down, they not only just went and moved forward their bill, but they re-amended the bill and amended a lot of other things back into the bill and added kind of their wish list to the bill. I think their attitude, and they didn't say this to me directly, but I think their strategy was 
get as much as we can under this movement. And if for some reason the bill doesn't pass, then we'll come back next year. But it's more important both for fundraising and everything else that surrounds kind of their political drive um, to just get everything they can in writing so that they can get it out into the media. And, uh, you know, fortunately, and, and the reason we have David and Tim here today is based on the legislation that we saw come out this year, we, we really needed uh, two top attorneys on this. And David and Tim sacrificed many hours to, uh, to help us guide us through this process. And um, I'm going to talk to David first about the, uh, the Bain Act and, you know, the civil rights stuff. I mean, what was your impression when you first saw the bill in regards to uh, what they were proposing regarding SB 731? It did a lot of things all at once in one bill, as Randy said, in the the last round of amendments. We thought we were getting closer to something that law enforcement could support or be neutral on that had a fair and a balanced process for removing bad officers from the profession and not allowing them to transfer to other agencies, but still protecting due process rights and fundamental fairness. And it just went crazy the other direction. With respect to the Bane, it's important to remember that California can't change qualified immunity under 1983. And so in my view, this was more of a political posturing act of let's go after qualified immunity. We can't, so we'll hit the next best thing, which uh, the Bain Act is really a, a civil rights statute. And without getting into the legal weeds of it, they did do some damage there of expanding liability for wrongful death and reducing the standard for liability to recklessness and taking away some of the state immunities, which are different than the federal immunities. But what was ironic is the way that they had originally drafted the bill, it would hit a lot of other public employees. A lot of the case law involved social workers who were removing children from abusive homes and then getting sued by the parents for doing that and relying on state immunities in order to avoid that liability. The other thing to remember in this shot is certainly anything that would keep officers subject to litigation longer is a bad thing. Uh, And these changes, if they had been enacted, might have incentivized civil rights lawyers to move from federal court to state court under the Bain Act. But there's two other concepts that are the fail-safe protection for the officers that weren't addressed, and that is respondent superior, which means that an employee who engages in some kind of tortious conduct that creates liability not only gets sued, but also the employer, and the employer is equally liable for whatever the employee's liability is. And then under the government code in Section 825 and 995, there's a duty to indemnify and defend, and this law didn't touch that. We saw in Colorado where an attack on qualified immunity limited the indemnification so that the officer was personally liable for the first $25,000. This bill didn't do that, but it definitely exposed officers to further litigation and really to the cities and counties that employ them. Thanks, David. And Tim, you know, based on outside of what uh, David just spoke about in regards to the, the commission, 
the the decertification component and uh, you know based on your experiences where else have you seen something as draconian as what we saw in SB 31 when it comes to certifying peace officers right so the concept of uh certifying or decertifying professionals, if you will, and being law enforcement professionals, that is not a new concept. We've got 45 other states that have some form of certification and decertification. And we do recognize that doctors and lawyers and other professionals are certified. The key concept behind all of that is one of due process to ensure that the individual licensee or the possessor of the certificate is afforded a fair objective process to determine whether they have in the first instance satisfied the requirements for that profession and continue to meet the standards for that profession uh, during their course of their career. And if it is brought to the attention of the licensing or certifying agency that some transgression or allegation has been leveled that is serious enough to call into question the right of that individual to continue in that profession, that there be a process evidentiary process to bring forward all those facts and make a an informed decision. The challenge with this particular bill has been in most of those professions, it's subject matter experts that make the final determination, like you would have a doctor evaluate whether a doctor was qualified, a lawyer evaluate whether a lawyer or a judge evaluating it. Here, I think one of the most troubling thing was things about it was to push the decision mostly to civilians. And that has an inherent political component to it that really removes a lot of the objectivity uh, that you need to make a a, a meaningful assessment of whether uh, an officer should or shouldn't continue in that profession. So we were struggling a lot through this process and, and, and Randy advocated this strongly and David and I worked on language to try to balance that uh, due process component, ensure a fair process. And I think what we were trying to get uh, injected in this would have moved the needle closer to center. I don't know if it would have been center, but that I think was the biggest challenge because the process itself is similar to those that are utilized for other professions. But the people that were going to make the decisions, the manner in which the decisions were going to be made was far too political to really be balanced for us, I think. Also, wasn't there their language, and maybe David could chime in on this piece, was that the once the commission made a decision, all the full commission, the full post commission, all they did was just a rubber stamp, approve it. And there was no real, uh, I don't know, appeal process. I Yes. The post commission was really, in my view, just an avatar, if you will, to give this process the appearance of credibility. But post was actually quite stripped of any real power. Early versions of the bill left it to post to make the determination as to what the criteria would be and who would be making that decision. I think all of our assumption was it would either be the full post board or some subcommittee of the board so that, as Tim said, you had folks that both have subject matter experience and impartiality is a key factor. And that means that you don't have personal experiences or biases that you bring that would essentially disqualify you from being objective on a case. And so if you were to take the same allegation of police misconduct in a civil jury, you wouldn't allow jurors who had had family members that were killed in an interaction with law enforcement or who had a violent interaction with law enforcement. But of the the board that really had the power, none of them were post commissioners of the nine only three had any law enforcement experience. One was had to be in internal affairs, which in my view is fine because they at least understand police misconduct and policies. You had two that were 
community activists with a specialty in police misconduct. And so we can imagine what groups they would be pulled from. Two that were from academia with a specialty in police misconduct. And so you have sort of a hammer, which views everything as a nail problem. You had uh, somebody that was an inspector general type person. And then you had a person or the family member of a person who had a wrongful use of deadly force against them. And wrongful is not a legal standard. It's subjective. And those are the type of people that would, in my view, never be allowed on a jury because they could not be impartial in the case. And so that committee would then make a determination. That determination had to be upheld by post unless there was no rational basis for it. And in legal terms, that means if you can articulate any kind of basis for the decision, which probably the complaint of misconduct would be sufficient as we believe it, then post would have to uphold that. The officer would have minimal due process rights throughout this. They would be subject to a skelly type review and then their license would presumably be revoked. They would be able to then go and have a full administrative procedure hearing, but the real problem and one of my fundamental issues with this from an American jurisprudence standpoint is that in this country, we don't retry people successively until we get the politically desired outcome. And under early versions of the bill and what the other states do is you look at a clear definition of serious misconduct. You have uh, typically is where an officer is fired or resigns in lieu of termination with an allegation of serious misconduct. And then you're bound by what the agency investigation or the administrative appeal is. This bill said that this biased board was not bound by the IA investigation determination, nor even a court appeal or an appellate court decision that found the officer innocent of the allegations of serious misconduct. And the definition of serious misconduct was so broad, it included, for example, a violation of any statute. It's already automatic disqualification for an officer to be convicted of a felony. So this would even encompass infractions like speeding or not wearing your seatbelt. And then an officer could be proven innocent and have to go relitigate in order to have his or her ability to earn a living through this post-process, which you're really not going to get a fair shake, and then you're going to have to go to another full-blown hearing in order to preserve your ability to earn a living. I guess that that brings up another topic, and, and maybe Tim can address this. So say you go through this whole process, peace officer loses their license, they go to court, and they're successful, and then the courts say, hey, you need to hire that officer back. What position is the agency in now? Because the post is saying they can no longer be certified as a peace officer, but yet the court's saying you have to give this person their job back. Well, obviously it creates um, a political firestorm for people, right? I mean, the, the the confidence in the system from the public's perspective is undermined by that. But look, if you set up a system that ultimately culminates in a judicial determination, and that law is written in a manner that says that's the final decision on what's to happen there, then you have to give some certainty to the court's ability looking at that evidence. And the standard, you know, it's yet to be defined here in what iteration of this bill would have come forward. But if the court is using some sort of a abusive discretion standard or substantial evidence standard or whatever, if the record is fleshed out in a way and that court makes that determination, then it seems to me that what they found is an error in every step up to that point as to whether that officer, whether there was a sufficient quantum of evidence, whether it rises to the level of serious misconduct, whether there's some sort of grounds to decertify that person. And we have the same thing with doctors 
uh, lawyers, there is a judicial review at the end, and an individual can be ordered to have their license reinstated if they find that there is has been you know a failure of proof or of due process or something like that. It's a difficult situation, but it, it can be. Now, the problem, of course, is going to be if the employer has already terminated that person, right, and you get your license back or your certification back as a peace officer, there's no real guarantee that you're going to find employment somewhere else, right? I've got my, my card, I can wave it around, but you may have effectively lost your opportunity to work as a consequence of it. And, and I'll open this question up to everybody here. I mean, the obviously the main sponsor for this bill was the American Civil Liberties Union. You know, they run around saying that we protect people's civil rights, but yet everything that we've talked about, everything in this bill is clearly uh, for when if, if it deals with a, uh, a peace officer, it's almost like a, it's, it's a kangaroo court. They just want to steamroll you because of a political event and they just want to be able to terminate you at a drop of a hat. Well, I think that's kind of normal of what's where we're at in society, right? Um, everything's an emotional response. There's, especially here in California, they like to use the word restorative justice, but as long as it's not involving a police officer, everyone gets a second chance. You know, we're trying to close down prisons because all the people in there didn't mean it. But if you're a police officer you they'll, and you did something wrong, I'm pretty sure they'll try to keep you in there. So I, I, I think that is probably the biggest issue is even the legislative process is built on emotion and not on facts uh, and true data, you know, uh, there's lies, damn lies and statistics. And so we'll use only the pieces of statistics that paint our narrative the right way. We won't bring the entire uh, set of numbers in to show, hey, this is what's going on. And can we make a bill that's objective, does what it needs to do and remove that uh, emotion that we're using to try to, you know, obviously it's politics, right? We're trying to use that emotion of the public and what they see and what the media feeds them, but not completely the facts of the case. So I think the the big question, and probably Randy should probably answer that is, you know, where we go from here, what do you think next year will look like? Given that we have our policy platform now, and it kind of gives us a, a, a roadmap, at least for us, where we, where we need to go or we want to go, but whether or not we'll have the ability to have reasonable conversations, or do you think it'll be a repeat of what it was this year? Well, Backing up, SB 731 by Bradford, the bill we're all talking about, failed on the last night of session. There were not enough votes, more importantly, enough Democrats who were willing to go up on the bill. They understood it had a lot of problems. But probably the most effective offense we had to hold that bill was the fact that PORAC leadership, along with the other law enforcement leaders, including the chiefs and sheriffs, had drafted language that created a decertification program. That decertification program did not look like the ACLU's program. It had due process. It was fair. It literally created a, a board like their bill did, but that board was a truly advisory where they would take all the investigation investigative files from the department regarding that officer's serious misconduct, would look at it and make a determination based on all the appeals and what has come before them, whether or not that qualifies under statute to decertify that officer. They would simply say yes or no, it qualifies. Then they would pass that to the full body, the post commission itself, because they actually in our bill own their certificate. So they are the only ones who can revoke it. And then they would make that decision. Upon that decision, if it was still revoked, then they would have the administrative appeals process that David spoke about. And that's all this system should be about. 
this body should not be on a have hunting rights. They should not have invest, investigatory rights. We even had language in our measure and the language we drafted that would give Post the ability to audit, if you will, a department under certain circumstances because there there have been complaints from legislators that they question the investigatory piece of the department. Are they doing the investigation? If they are, are they doing it correctly? Are they sweeping it under the rug because they're trying to save face, lawsuits, what have you? So our bill said that Post could go out and actually for a department who may have three or so serious misconducts against an officer in one year that are not sustained, they could go out and talk to that department, take a look at the file, ask them questions. Why didn't you investigate someone here? Did you interview witnesses? But that was it. They could be watching those departments and hopefully that would be enough for those departments to make sure they're being watched and that they'll do it correctly. You know, we're still working on that piece of it because we want to make sure there's due process. If they are not sustaining some of these complaints for most, you know, it's usually because that officer didn't do it or it's a false complaint or it's simply unfounded. Um, so we should not be retrying that officer even under those circumstances. So we want to tread lightly there, but we do want, we do hear management on that. Can I just follow up on that for, for a moment? It, you know, the zeal and the, and the desire to go after law enforcement, uh, I think was very obvious because there is other legislation that was enacted last year and, and further efforts to expand upon it that would get to the nub of a lot of these concerns. When we passed 1421, you got to see into investigations in a lot of agencies as to what was happening and what, what the newspapers were to their disappointment finding is that most agencies investigated and terminated those officers that really needed to be fired. Okay. And, and so the, the wind was out of their sails in some respects because most of the law enforcement agencies are actually doing what they're supposed to do. And it was my belief that once you open that piece of it up, the pressure on those agencies to make sure they were crossing their T's and dotting their I's would be greater and that there would actually be a lot of this, this oversight or this self policing, if you will, of those things that would naturally occur with all, all of these knee jerk, over-the-top kinds of processes that everybody wanted to, to put in place just to get a pound of flesh. And it does tie right back into what we've been talking about, which is the public doesn't understand what they see. They don't understand what's proper, what's appropriate, what's lawful. They just use their own subjective beliefs about, hey, that's not right. And they want to just be a bulldozer right through all the due process and all the law and everything else to get to a result. And so for me, part of this was we had things in place. We just haven't allowed them a sufficient time to work as you would normally see them. And I think a lot of this stuff is just getting far too far ahead of itself. So back to the future, I think Porak did a very good job of drafting legislation along with these two attorneys and their firms, by the way, who I just, for on behalf of our firm and Aaron, want to thank both you guys. You guys were absolutely invaluable. I mean, Aaron and I are lobbyists when it, and we didn't, we know the law, we know legislation, but when it comes down to peace officer rights on the street and the appeals processes and who's making those decisions and all that, uh, our panel attorneys are the experts at that. And we want to make sure we get it right. So the fact that these two individuals and their firm were giving us the, the immediate 
turnaround help on uh, amendments. You guys saw there were amendments coming out almost every day on some of these bills. They were amending them one day and the next day they were coming out in print and amendments were coming back that night and they were coming back in print again. And there's technical reasons why that is difficult because as you amend, the previous amendments from do not show up as amendments any longer. So at some point you don't, you, you have to understand what is current law and what did they do in this bill over the last three iterations. So I think PORAC needs to move forward with a decertification bill. Uh, as you said, Brian, you, you've brought on an expert to research of, of the other states, what works, what doesn't. Um, I think we need to draft with the other law enforcement organizations, both labor and management, and sponsor a bill that creates a robust decertification program. So we're guaranteed to go after peace officers who probably shouldn't be law enforcement officers. However, still afford the, the due process rights that everybody is afforded in California. And then we'll, we should put together a package of bills or some other bills that we didn't get to today that I think that didn't make it. Um, that I think we need to redraft and probably put in a package of law enforcement reform bills. Absolutely. I can't thank uh, David and Tim for the outstanding work they've done on behalf of PORAC and all our members and actually every peace officer in the state of California. I mean, you two have uh, stepped up and supported us during this very uh, tumultuous time in law enforcement and uh, can't thank you enough. And I think that just is a testament to uh, PORAC's LDF panel attorney firms uh, throughout the state. I, th I always say this everywhere I go. I think we have the best attorneys in the nation right here in California. California and uh, two are sitting right next to us. So again, thank you for that. This sort of was supposed to be a legislative wrap up, but uh, you know what? SB 731 is such a terrible bill that we could spend probably another 90 minutes talking about it and uh, how detrimental it was for our profession. So we're probably going to wrap it up with just 731. I think we're going to have to come back and have another conversation about uh, some of the other stuff that did pass and that didn't pass. But if you go to our website, we have our PORAC policy platform charting a new path forward. Talks about a lot of uh, positions that uh, you know we feel are best to move our profession forward. Forward, you know where we go from here. Obviously, I agree with uh, Randy. I think we need to uh, we need to introduce our own bills. I think we learned last year that we really need to start uh, uh, introducing bills that are more uh, beneficial in a sense that they actually take into account uh, due process rights. You know, making sure that there's not double jeopardy and that we're protecting the communities we were sworn to serve. And that's the reason we uh, we signed up for the job. So I'm going to close it up there. I want to thank Randy, David, and Tim for coming in. Uh, I want to thank you all for joining us on this latest episode of On the Job with Porak. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your ideas for upcoming episodes. Join us on all our social media platforms and be sure to tag us with your suggestions. Go to porak.org to learn more about California's largest law enforcement organization representing over 77,000 public safety members. Make sure to check out and share our monthly podcasts and past episodes on porak.org, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or wherever available. Lastly, we'd like to say thank you to all our Porak members and our nation's law enforcement. Be safe and have a great day. That's it for this episode. Make sure you tune in next time as we discuss the issues that matter. 